You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Today we are reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, um, verses 12 through 16, and that will be found on page uh, 1017 um, in, the, in the Bibles in the back uh, of the pews. Uh, if you do not have a Bible to call your, your own, um, please take one as our gift to you. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. If Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's rise for the gospel. Today's reading is Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, found on page 810 in your pew Bibles. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord Christ. Be seated, please. Well, good morning, friends. Um, my name is Lane Cowan, and it's a privilege to be in worship with you this morning. And if you have been with us for some Sundays this fall, you know that we've been looking at Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5, where he describes these blessings of a life following him. And as a reminder, in this, in this moment, Jesus as rabbi is sitting amongst his disciples, these that are apprenticing with him, and he is teaching these committed ones how to live his way of life. And Jesus is describing the shape and the feel of this new reality, this kingdom of heaven that he has brought to earth and that they have joined too. And so as he's outlining the contours of this new reality, He is offering these teachings that often appear then and now to us, a way of life that seems backwards or upside down. 
And so we have this uh, sermon series called Paradox Manifesto, not to be particularly creative or innovative or edgy, but because again, this way of life that Jesus is inviting us into can often seem paradoxical. So before we go any further, let me pray. Would you join me? Father, by the power of your spirit, would you open your word to us this morning? And when the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock. Amen. Well, friends, Halloween is nearly upon us. And I'm guessing that some of you, like me, might have experienced some versions of Christian alternatives to Halloween. I've attended fall carnivals, harvest festivals, all Hallows' Eves and all Saints' Eves. And my favorite is Reformation Day. And a favorite piece for me to these harvest festivals or Reformation Day parties is seeing kids come dressed up as Christian saints and especially the martyrs. It's always a trip to see what parents have allowed in the way of the costume design representing something of how that martyr died. Exactly how specific do the costumes get? Well, Uh, You might have listened closely last Sunday and heard that as Dan was unpacking for us the verse before that mentions persecution, that those who are committed to a life of Christian righteousness, one of supreme loyalty and obedience to Jesus's way of living, when they seek that life of righteousness in Christ's name, the more that these missionary encounters or tensions come about. Those who follow Jesus and those who don't follow Jesus come into tension. And for those who are seeking a life of righteousness and experiencing these friction points, we heard last week that persecution will come. That's a scary thought. And today we're going to continue that conversation we began last week. We're going to continue looking to how Jesus invites us to take up a blessing, a fortunate, happy reality in any experience of persecution. We're going to do that and look to the martyrs to see what they might have to teach us. So trick or treat, buckle in. So we've read in Matthew 11 and 12 that we are meant to be rejoicing, to rejoice and be glad when others persecute us on Jesus's account. And we heard that in Peter's letter that was also just read, an echo of the same command where Peter writes, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, the persecutions when they come upon you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But friends, wouldn't it be a simpler thing to only be called to tolerate persecution, to endure it, even to accept it. Why this invitation, really this command from Jesus to rejoice and be glad? This would certainly seem backwards or upside down to those gathered close to Jesus as he is teaching this paradoxical saying. Now, an important reminder here is that nowhere in scripture is persecution called good. It is not It is not good. God does not desire to see anyone suffer, certainly those suffering undeservedly or in Jesus's name. 
But there are dangers to avoid here. There are two dangers uh, in, in, in considering persecution. The first danger is to exaggerate or embellish upon what constitutes persecution on Jesus' account and to interpret too much of our lives through the lens of persecution. We could err on the side of calling something persecution when in fact someone just doesn't like us or being a jerk or people disagree with us or we are uncomfortable. Particularly if we are being aggressive or forceful in trying to share our way of life by winning in some way and it is not done on Jesus' account but for our own. That is not the persecution that Jesus speaks to. Jesus is speaking of how when our loyalty to Jesus' way of life comes into tension with the ways that others around us live and there are those who have the ability to harass us for it. They have the ability and the power to persecute. That's one danger, to see persecution where it is not. The other danger is to dismiss or ignore where Scripture speaks of persecution because we find these passages perhaps irrelevant, perhaps threatening, even embarrassing, confusing. Because friends, in every century of the church's history, Christians have suffered and even died for their faith. And that continues to happen today around the world. And so we have to take it seriously when John 15 tells us of how Jesus said to these followers, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So if persecution is something Jesus tells us to anticipate, how then can we expect to rejoice and be glad The clue here is in that same sentence of verse 12 where Jesus tells us that we can be rejoicing, we can rejoice and be glad because our reward is great in heaven. So we're gonna consider the rewards of heaven together as they relate to persecution or specifically three ways that experiencing persecution in Christ's name or on his account offers us the opportunity to rejoice. Three ways that experiencing persecution in Christ's name leads us to rejoice and be glad. And here are the three points. If you're one like I do, I love to write the outline down first. So the three points are that we can rejoice in deep communion with Jesus. When we face persecution, we can rejoice in deep communion. The second is when we face persecution, we can rejoice in direct knowledge of Jesus as the embodiment of these very kingdom promises. We can rejoice in direct knowledge of Jesus. And the third is that we can rejoice in a powerful witness on behalf of Jesus to the world as we embody or share Jesus's missional presence to our neighbors. So first, when we uh, face persecution, we can rejoice in deep communion with Jesus. There's something intimate happening in these verses in Matthew Did you notice how in all the previous beatitude statements that Jesus has made, he speaks of them, of they. Blessed are those, blessed are they. But here in verses 11 and 12, Jesus now says to his disciples, blessed are you. He addresses them personally. Though there are crowds gathered farther away, perhaps eavesdropping on what Jesus is saying here, Jesus is talking to these apprentices, those committed followers, very personally. Can you imagine Jesus 
looking around the circle of these dear friends and followers of his as he speaks to them about their own suffering and persecution to come. And Jesus tells them, blessed are you, or that word blessed can mean how fortunate, how lucky, what a happy thing it is that you would be persecuted on my account because your reward is great in heaven. Now we have to think about this word heaven too, because we might consider heaven to be something far away, something distant, something that is not yet accessible to us. But this word heaven, the Greek word uranos, that's translated heaven in our Bibles, also means sky, air. It's this idea of the reality around us and above us. The theologian R.T. France writes about this exchange that Jesus is announcing a reward already in hand because the reward in heaven is not held in a location, but held in a relationship to God. Heaven is God's space where the fullest, truest reality exists and it is close by earth and it even overlaps it and surrounds the earth. You see, simply put, the reward in heaven is a reward that is from God and is in fact God, and it is here. It is all around. Jesus has brought this reality of heaven where God is already king because it is now becoming the reality of the world, transforming this earth into the place of truth and beauty and goodness that God has always intended. And those who follow Jesus have to hear the good news that they are brought into this new reality. Now, Jesus is bringing heaven to earth now. It has begun. All the promises of God culminate in Jesus. Jesus was the one who traveled the countryside healing bodies and souls. Jesus was the one who forgave sins. Jesus was and is the bearer of the kingdom of heaven, not only in what he said or what he taught or even what he did, but who he was as God made man come to earth. And so that reality of God in heaven is now walking on the earth, God made man. And Jesus is speaking to his followers saying, your reward in heaven is here, it's now. And so these apprentices who've committed themselves to Jesus are also told that this Christian life that they're to lead, it's often counter to the culture at large. And to live under Jesus' authority is to be in tension with competing authorities that go against Jesus' way. And persecution will come. Because to read through these Beatitudes is to read of the life of those who seemingly are the losers, the weak ones, the powerless ones, the ones who lose. And Jesus is not asking his followers to excel in some deranged sport of competitive persecution or to perform an act of suffering for him. Rather, Jesus offers them and us an invitation to participate in his life, to live Jesus's life with him. And in his life, Jesus knew persecution. Jesus' way is a downward path. Christians call Jesus' way the life of the cross, anticipating that at some point, if we are to follow Jesus, we have a cross of our own to bear in some way. But this life with Jesus is also one of rich fellowship with him. 
And that's why Paul, who was persecuted intensely on Christ's behalf, can write in Philippians 3, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, sharing in Christ's sufferings allowed Christians to become more like Jesus as they knew Jesus's own life as their own and shared in the reality that he lived. Now, I know many of you have probably known what a gift it is, even a relief it can be to learn of someone who has suffered in a way that you have. There's a deep camaraderie, a deep communion when people share in something painful, difficult, when people share in suffering. And there is a way to know Jesus if we experience a suffering of persecution on his account. There is deep communion with him. And the saints knew this. From the earliest generations of the church, there are incredible and uh, often really um, gruesome stories of how martyrs faced this shared experience with Christ in suffering. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch in the second century, wrote this as he faced his death, near to the sword, I am near to God. In the company of wild beasts, I am in company with God. Only let all that happens be in the name of Jesus Christ so that we may suffer with him. I can endure all things if he enables me. I am God's wheat. May I be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts until I become the fine bread that belongs to Christ. And he indeed was uh, as he met his death by beasts. There was a third century martyr named Genesius of Rome who wrote, there's but one king I know. It is he that I love and worship. If I were to be killed a thousand times for my loyalty to him, I would still be his servant. Christ is on my lips. Christ is in my heart. No amount of suffering will take him from me. And another third century martyr, Cyprian of Carthage, said this, good God, may we confess your name to the end. May we emerge unmarked and glorious from the traps of darkness in this world. As you have bound us together by charity and peace, and as together we have persevered under persecution, so may we also rejoice together in your heavenly kingdom. They knew deep communion with Jesus. That's one first opportunity to rejoice if we face persecution. The second is rejoicing in a direct knowledge of Jesus as the embodiment of kingdom promises. You see, those who face persecution and suffering because of their loyalty to Jesus know directly, immediately, intimately how Jesus meets us in our need. Because it is not theory, but in actuality that those can rejoice in our poverty because Jesus is in our wealth, our wealth. In our mourning, Jesus is in our comforter. In our meekness, Jesus is our strength. In our hunger, Jesus is the one that feeds us. And as we offer mercy, Jesus is the mercy behind it all. His is the face we long to see. He is our peace. And in him, we become children of God. And so if we live in a way that seems backwards to much of the world, facing friction points of missionary encounter, this lets us actually experience or live into what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, 
the seemingly backwards, upside-down kingdom in actuality, not just in theory. There were two brothers that lived in the fourth century in what was Persia, Jonas and Barachesius, two brothers that faced their own torture and death by different ways. And Jonas, before he was divided into many different pieces, uh, said this, from the day I came into the world, I never remember a night more sweet and agreeable. This is the night before his death. For I was wonderfully refreshed by the remembrance of Christ's sufferings. After his death, his brother Barachesius, facing now his own suffering and death near to come, said this, our life is seed sown in the earth to rise again in the world to come where we will be renewed by Christ and immortal life. I did not frame this body, nor will I destroy it. God, you gave me life and you also restore it. Christians throughout time and throughout the world have known what it is to rejoice in how Jesus directly meets them in their need. And there's this third opportunity to rejoice in a powerful witness of the church as we then embody Jesus's missional presence with the world. Because you see, just after this passage in Matthew, where Jesus speaks of the persecution to come for those who follow this way, the way of the kingdom, Jesus speaks to them of being salt of the earth, light of the world, words that describe how these kingdom of heaven citizens are meant to live in the world and the outcome of this distinctive, different way of living is meant to have people notice and respond. And some people respond in faith. And some people respond in dismissal or mockery or persecution. And as Christians demonstrate loyalty to Jesus, even to the point of suffering and apparent defeat and death, they are actually bearing witness to a God who loves the world and moves through the world by way of a self-sacrificing, cruciform love. You see, the Greek word for witness is martus. This is where we get the term martyr. A martyr is a witness, and men and women who have died because they refused to set aside Jesus' kingdom and, and, and bow to the competing authorities, they are great witnesses, these martyrs, to the power of Christ and his church. That's why one of the great early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, allowing the church to grow and spread and take root throughout the world. That's why 16th century English reformer Henry Latimer could say to his fellow martyr on the day of their death, Ridley, we shall this day, brother, light such a candle in England as by God's grace shall never be put out. You see, historically, when the church has suffered widespread persecution, it has also experienced growth and life. Historically, when the church has not been driven by self-preservation or fear or avoidance of persecution, but rather a self-giving love and faithfulness, the church has grown. When the church has stayed true to the cruciform, downward path of Jesus, it has exposed the heart of Jesus to the world which is meant to be the heart of the church, a heart that is committed to righteousness and justice, a heart of mercy with an eye, especially toward the vulnerable and oppressed and those who are persecuted 
on account of Jesus are not driven by bitterness or retaliation or fear because they have no need for self-preservation at all costs. Their place in the kingdom of heaven has been secured. Their reward has been gotten. And the point of this kingdom life is not survival, but service. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that one vital aspect of the church is that it exists for others. Another priest in our diocese, Robert Cunningham in Charlottesville, when preaching on this passage said, the church is most properly the church when it exists as a gift and sustenance for the world because it is mirroring the very character of our Lord who came not to lead by coercive force, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus lived this backward, upside down, paradoxical life, even as he was inviting others to it, who could rejoice then in spreading this powerful witness with and for Jesus through the world. Now, friends, as we move towards closing, I wanna invite you to look at your liturgy. The front cover of our liturgy this morning has this painting on it by an Irish artist named Brian Whalen. This is the Last Supper and Waylon has portrayed Jesus at the bottom there with his arms outstretched, offering sustenance to his table mates. He's facing away, which is unique. And the artist has painted the disciples with various objects in hand. Some of these objects hint at their activities in life. For instance, you see Matthew down at the lower bottom in green, Matthew the tax collector holding a bag of coin. Or you see in the upper right corner, two of the former fishermen holding a fish in a net. You can see Thomas, middle on the right, holding a wooden T-square, thought to reference his supposed work in India as a builder of many churches. And below him, Philip in red, holding some baked bread, thought to be in reference to his exchange with Jesus in John chapter six about needing more than a year's wages to feed a crowd of 5,000 with two measly loaves of bread. And of course, there's Peter next to him holding the keys to the kingdom that Christ has brought to them all. And interestingly, you can see at the top in green, Judas Iscariot, who is reaching for bread at the center of the table and he has spilt or wasted salt in his haste. Now, some of these disciples are holding objects that speak not to their lives, but to their deaths, rather. You can see Bartholomew at the top left holding a dagger pointing down. Tradition has it that Bartholomew brought the gospel to Armenia in the first century, was eventually tortured, skinned alive for converting the king. And the king's brother had him executed. You can also see James a little below him holding a wooden club. And tradition has it that James, son of Alphaeus, was preaching near the temple in Jerusalem sometime after Peter had left for Rome. And James was stoned by a crowd, dragged to the top of the temple and thrown down and then dealt a final fatal blow with a wooden club. And all these men share this table with Jesus because Jesus made it so. These disciples experienced a deep communion with Jesus, knew Jesus' loving help and provision, and were themselves part of the powerful witness of the church as they brought God's good news of the kingdom of heaven come to earth across the whole world. 
And that was so profound for them that it helped them withstand incredible persecution where most around this table did not survive it. But they were held by the faith and the love of Jesus and how his life and his death on their behalf granted them a place at his table forever. And friends, we are held by Jesus at this table today. As Christians gathered in worship, we share this table as we too are invited to rejoice in this deep communion with Jesus, to rejoice in the direct knowledge that Jesus provides for us, even and especially if we experience these upside down backward sufferings of the Christian way. Jesus embodies these promises of the kingdom of heaven for us as we share in this powerful witness of God's work in the world through his church. And the last thing to know, friends, to remember and keep close is that there will be a day when all of these rewards already begun all around us in God's heaven space, that these rewards will one day be fully and finally given to those who follow Jesus, where communion with our Jesus is unhindered, uninterrupted, unending, where our knowledge of Jesus as the perfect embodiment of this kingdom way is complete. His help is no longer needed. Where all the world has witnessed the power of the risen Lord Jesus and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And the children of God will live in the kingdom of heaven, fully come to the earth. And we will join in on the scene that is described in Revelation 19, which says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you allow us this deep communion with you? Would you allow us opportunity to rejoice in how you meet our every need? Lord, would you allow us to rejoice in a powerful witness for the sake of the world coming to know and love you? And Jesus, though we do not seek persecution, we seek knowing you as our good and perfect God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who can and will sustain us in this strange and backward life that we sometimes experience together. And so, Lord, in your mercy, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.